Section 20 of the Book of Sir Marco Polo, the Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Sir Marco Polo, the Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 2, by Wusticello da Pisa. Translated by Henry Yule. Book Fourth, Chapters Twenty Three to Thirty Four. Chapter Twenty Three. He begins to speak of the Straits of Constantinople, but decides to leave that matter. At the Straits leading into the Great Sea on the west side, there is a hill called the Faro. But since beginning on this matter, I have changed my mind, because so many people know all about it, so we will not put it in our description but go on to something else. And so I will tell you about the Tartars of the Ponent, and the lords who have reigned over them. Chapter 24 Concerning the Tartars of the Ponent and their lords The first lord of the Tartars of the Ponent was Sain, a very great and puissant king who conquered Russia and Comania, Alania, Lak, Menjar, Zik, Gothia and Gazaria, all these provinces were conquered by King Sain. Before his conquest, these all belonged to the Comanians, but they did not hold well together, nor were they united, and thus they lost their territories and were dispersed over diverse countries, and those who remained all became the servants of King Sain. After King Sain reigned King Patu, and after Patu, Barca, and after Barca, Mongol Timur, and after Mongol Timur, King Totamangol, and then Toktai, the present sovereign. Now I have told you of the Tartar kings of the Ponent, and next I shall tell you of a great battle that was fought between Alau, the lord of the Levant, and Barca, the lord of the Ponent. So now we will relate out of what occasion that battle arose, and how it was fought. Chapter 25 Of the war that arose between Alau and Barca, and the battles that they fought. It was in the year 1261 of Christ's incarnation that there arose a great discord between King Alau, the lord of the Tartars of the Levant, and Barca, the king of the Tartars of the Ponent. The occasion whereof was a province that lay on the confines of both. They exchanged defiances and make vast preparations. And when his preparations were complete, Alau, the lord of the Levant, set forth with all his people. They marched for many days without any adventure to speak of, and at last they reached a great plain which extends between the Iron Gates and the Sea of Cyrene. In this plain he pitched his camp in beautiful order, and I can assure you there was many a rich tent and pavilion therein, so that it looked indeed like a camp of the wealthy. Alau said he would tarry there to see if Barca and his people would come, so there they tarried, abiding the enemy's arrival. This place where the camp was pitched was on the frontier of the two kings. Now let us speak of Barca and his people. Chapter 26. How Barca and his army advanced to meet Alau. Barca advances with 350,000 horse, encamps on the plain within 10 miles of Alau, addresses his men, announcing his intention of fighting after three days, and expresses his confidence of success, as they are in the right and have 50,000 men more than the enemy. Chapter 27. How Alau Addressed His Followers 
Alao calls together a numerous parliament of his worthies, and addresses them. Chapter 28 Of the Great Battle Between Alao and Barca Description of the battle in the usual style, with nothing characteristic, results in the rout of Barca and great slaughter. Chapter 29 How Totamangu was lord of the Tartars of the Ponent You must know there was a prince of the Tartars of the Ponent, called Mongo Temur, and from him the sovereignty passed to a young gentleman called Tolobuga. But Totamangu, who was a man of great influence, with the help of another Tartar king called Nogai, slew Tolobuga and got possession of the sovereignty. He reigned not long, however, and at his death, Toktai, an able and valiant man, was chosen sovereign in the place of Totamangu. But in the meantime, two sons of that Tolobuga, who was slain, were grown up, and were likely youths, able and prudent. So these two brothers, the sons of Totamangu, got together a goodly company and proceeded to the court of Toktai. When they had got thither, they conducted themselves with great discretion, keeping on their knees till Toktai bade them welcome and to stand up. Then the eldest addressed the sovereign thus, Good my lord Toktai, I will tell you to the best of my ability why we be come hither. We are the sons of Totamangu, whom Tolabuga and Nogai slew, as thou well knowest. Of Tolabuga we will say no more, since he is dead, but we demand justice against Nogai as the slayer of our father, and we pray thee as sovereign lord to summon him before thee and to do us justice. For this cause are we come. Toktai agrees to their demand and sends two messengers to summon Nogai, but Nogai mocks at the message and refuses to go, whereupon Toktai sends a second couple of messengers. Chapter 30 Of the second message that Toktai sent to Nogai and his reply. They carry a threat of attack if he should refuse to present himself before Toktai. Nogai refuses with defiance. Both sides prepare for war, but Toktai's force is the greater in numbers. Chapter 31 How Toktai Marched Against Nogai The usual description of their advance to meet one another. Toktai is joined by the two sons of Totamangu with a goodly company. They encamp within ten miles of each other in the plain of Nergi. Chapter 32 How Toktai and Nogai Address Their People and the Next Day Join Battle the whole of this is in the usual formula without any circumstance worth transcribing. The forces of Nogai, though inferior in numbers, are the better men-at-arms. King Toktai shows great valor. Chapter 33. The Valiant Feats and Victory of King Nogai. The deeds of Nogai surpass all. The enemy part and scatter before him like a flock. They are routed and pursued, losing 60,000 men. But King Toktai escapes and so do the two sons of Totamangu. Chapter 34 and last. Conclusion And now ye have heard all that we can tell you about the Tartars and the Saracens and their customs, and likewise about the other countries of the world, as far as our researches and information extend. Only we have said nothing whatever about the greater sea and the provinces that lie round it, although we know it thoroughly. But it seems to me a needless and useless task to speak about places which are visited by people every day, for there are so many who sail all about that sea constantly, Venetians and Genoese and Pisans and many others, that everybody knows all about it, 
and that is the reason that I pass it over and say nothing of it. Of the manner in which we took our departure from the court of the great Khan you have heard at the beginning of the book, in that chapter where we told you of all the vexation and trouble that Messer Maffeo and Messer Niccolo and Messer Marco had about getting the great Khan's leave to go. And in that same chapter is related the lucky chance that led to our departure. And you may be sure that but for that lucky chance, we should never have got away in spite of all our trouble, and never have got back to our country again. But I believe it was God's pleasure that we should get back, in order that people might learn about the things that the world contains. For according to what has been said in the introduction at the beginning of the book, there never was a man, be he Christian or Saracen, or Tartar or heathen, who ever travelled over so much of the world as did that noble and illustrious citizen of the city of Venice, Messer Marco, the son of Messer Niccolo Polo. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. End of section 20. End of The Book of Sir Marco Polo, The Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East. Volume 2 by Rusticello da Pisa. Translated by Henry Yule. Recording by Karen.